The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. U.S. President Joe Biden confirms a wartime visit to Israel tomorrow, while Secretary of State Antony Blinken stresses the need to get aid into Gaza as the humanitarian crisis worsens. At our request, the United States and Israel have agreed to develop a plan that will enable humanitarian aid from donor nations and multilateral organizations to reach civilians in Gaza, and them alone. On markets, the Dow sees its best day in a month as investors turn optimistic on corporate earnings, with Goldman Sachs and Bank of America reporting today. You can catch our U.S. colleagues' conversation with the Bank of America CEO, Brian Moynihan, that is at 1600 CET. Country Garden teeters on the edge of a dollar bond default as the Chinese property developer nears the end of a 30-day grace period for a $15 million coupon payment. And Russian President Vladimir Putin arrives in Beijing ahead of a meeting with his Chinese counterpart as the two leaders look to solidify their controversial no-limits partnership. Elsewhere, crypto is in the red after asset manager BlackRock denies a report that U.S. regulators have approved its application for a spot Bitcoin ETF. We're going to be speaking to the Tether CEO, Paolo Adoino, at 9.45 CET. That is a first on CNBC. the latest around the geopolitics this morning, U.S. President Joe Biden will visit Israel tomorrow in a show of solidarity with his top Middle East ally. The one-day trip will see Biden meet with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Tel Aviv, followed by a stop in neighboring Jordan, where he'll meet with King Abdullah, Egyptian President Sisi and the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. The trip comes at a critical juncture in the war as Israeli forces prepare for a likely ground assault on Gaza. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken reaffirmed the U.S.'s steadfast commitment to Israel while announcing new assistance for civilians impacted by the war. At our request, the United States and Israel have agreed to develop a plan that will enable humanitarian aid from donor nations and multilateral organizations to reach civilians in Gaza and them alone, including the possibility of creating areas to help keep civilians out of harm's way. It is critical that aid begin flowing into Gaza as soon as possible. We share Israel's concern that Hamas may seize or destroy aid entering Gaza or otherwise preventing it from reaching the people who need it. If Hamas in any way blocks humanitarian assistance from reaching civilians, including by seizing the aid itself, we'll be the first to condemn it and we will work to prevent it from happening again. Let's get to NBC's Ellison Barber who filed this report from Israel. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says President Joe Biden will visit Israel on Wednesday, shortly after he made that announcement around 3.30 a.m. A spokesperson for Israel's defense forces held a virtual briefing, and we asked him if he thought the president's visit to Israel 
would impact their military plans here in any way? He said the short answer is he does not know, and we will have to see. He said he expects later in the morning hours for the Israeli government to comment more on the U.S. president's expected visit here. He said he does not believe, though, that Biden's visit is meant to hinder their military plans here in any way, shape, or form. He said he believes the visit is to act as a show of solidarity, to make sure that Israel knows the U.S. supports its rights to defend itself, and also to try and ensure that this conflict doesn't expand beyond what we have seen so far. Israel has said they are prepared to launch the next phase of this war, which they have described as a coordinated and integrated attack on Gaza by air, land, and sea. But so far, it hasn't started yet. We have been on the Israel-Gaza border for days now. We have heard artillery fired in the direction of Gaza. We have heard drones overhead, military aircrafts, military helicopters, as well as fighter jets. But so far, that next phase of war, it hasn't started yet. Back to you. That was NBC's Ellison Barber in Israel. EU Council President Charles Michel will chair an emergency session later this afternoon as heads of state look to project a unified message over the Israel-Hamas conflict. Hassan Al-Hassan, Research Fellow for Middle East Policy at IISS, joins us now. Um, thank you so much for being with us, Hassan. Good morning to you. Um, we were just hearing from our NBC colleague about President Biden's upcoming visit to Israel. I'm curious, in your view, what the U.S. leader is likely looking to achieve with this visit? Well, good morning, and thank you very much for having me. Um, I think the first message that President Biden carries uh, ultimately is a message of solidarity with uh, with Israel. That has always been the U.S. position, uh, and I think uh, the U.S. expressed that uh, very clearly by uh, through top-level political statements, but also by mobilizing military assets, uh, sending a clear signal to uh, Israel's uh, adversaries in the region that uh, the U.S. is. Uh, not only politically, but also uh, militarily on, on Israel's side. But I think beyond a uh, message of solidarity, there is, I think, a U.S. concern uh, that Israel should take concrete steps to ease the humanitarian situation in Gaza. Uh, the humanitarian situation in Gaza, even prior to the war, had already been extremely precarious. Gaza had been under blockade for about 16 years. Uh, and of course, Israel's um, laying of total siege on the Strip by cutting off electricity, water, food, fuel, and medicine uh, has made that situation much, much worse. So there is some pressure on the part of the United States for Israel to begin uh, allowing humanitarian aid to flow into the Strip. The uh, Israeli Defense Force had threatened earlier to bomb uh, humanitarian convoys coming in from Egypt. Uh, but I think the Americans will also be pressing the Israelis to think very hard about what their exit strategy is going to be uh, once they uh, the ground incursion in uh, Gaza is accomplished. So they go in, but uh, how do they then go out? Who controls the Strip? Uh, who governs it? Uh, because the risk, I think, uh, that the Americans are trying trying to avoid uh, is uh, for Israel to end up in a situation where uh, it's in control and it can't uh, leave the Strip. Well, Hassan, um, so much, so many questions now come to mind listening to to your opening comments there. But let me just talk about what happens if we do see this ground incursion come through. Iran has been warning Israel in the last week about going into Gaza on the ground. Is Iran effectively warning that should they proceed with this, that there is a risk of Hezbollah launching an attack perhaps from the north? 
So Iran does not want uh, this conflict to escalate into a region-wide war. Uh, and um, however, it does have a credibility requirement that it needs to meet. In other words, as the leader of the so-called axis of resistance, uh, Iran cannot be seen as uh, doing completely nothing while uh, Israel uh, bombs uh, Gaza mercilessly and uh, prepares for a ground incursion. So uh, senior Hezbollah officials have said that the uh, group would intervene and join the fight uh, if Israel embarks on a ground incursion. So far, the Hezbollah has engaged in attrition, distraction tactics uh, along uh, South Lebanon, uh, northern uh, border with uh, Israel's northern border. Uh, but again, the question is, if Israel does embark on a ground invasion, will uh, Hezbollah be true to its word and join uh, the fight completely, or will it simply continue to uh, harass and engage in these uh, harassment and destruction uh, tactics along the border? The real issue, I think, the most serious consequence is, uh, of course, looking at the humanitarian situation in Gaza, meaning that there is at the moment no scenario short of a total ethnic cleansing uh, in which uh, Israel can embark on a ground invasion and not kill many, many, many thousands of Palestinians. And the Israelis have actually toyed with the idea of an ethnic cleansing by forcing a mass displacement of Palestinians uh, into the Egyptian Sinai. But that's something that the Egyptians have refused, and most Arab countries, all of the Arab countries, in fact, uh, support the Egyptian position. Um, and so we then saw the Israelis trying to force a mass displacement of Palestinians from the northern part to the southern part of Gaza. Many Palestinians have refused to move because the humanitarian situation in the south is not much better than the north. Uh, and many Palestinians are simply unable to move, uh, either because they're too old or too young uh, or too sick, injured, uh, critically ill in Palestinian hospitals, and therefore are incapable uh, of moving southwards. Can I ask you whether there's anything that the Israelis can achieve with a ground offensive then? What's the ultimate strategy and how do they get some mileage out of this ground offensive? So Israel's goal that it is trying to accomplish through a ground incursion is the permanent uh, defeat of and decisive defeat of Hamas. The issue is that, uh, and they will try to accomplish that by uh, through a ground incursion, by attempting to destroy Hamas's military infrastructure, destroy its tunnel network, uh, and then uh, and potentially even change Gaza's topography by attempting to widen the neutral zone uh, along the dividing uh, line. These are all possible potential likely elements of uh, what Israel will try to accomplish through a ground uh, incursion. The issue is that this is ultimately, in the long run, a self-defeating strategy, uh, because what Israel will simply accomplish by uh, uh, killing Palestinians at scale, which seems to be inevitable uh, uh, if Israel does embark on a ground uh, incursion, is simply do Hamas's work uh, 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 f through the uh, continued uh, sustenance of these memories of war, destruction and, and killing that allow Hamas to sustain itself and to regenerate and to recruit new members, essentially by pushing Palestinians to the brink of desperation. Hassan, you, you mentioned the word ethnic or the, the phrase ethnic cleansing here, but that is your view or, or your interpretation of the situation. In terms of what we've got in future here and with borders being closed, how do countries around the region deal with what's now playing out on their borders? Uh, for instance, this crossing, we saw the Rafa crossing yesterday, people piling in that direction. What do we think the Egyptians are going to do in this situation? The Arab consensus at this stage is, uh, first of all, to prevent 
a uh, wider escalation of this uh, conflict into a region-wide war. So as I said, no one wants uh, a region-wide war. Uh, the second uh, aspect of the Arab consensus is to reject a mass displacement of Palestinians outside of Gaza. So uh, all of the Arab countries are firmly behind Egypt uh, in refusing uh, the idea that uh, Gazans should simply be completely displaced out of the Strip and uh, into the Egyptian desert. And third of all, I think all of the Arab countries agree uh, about the need to bring uh, into effect a, an immediate uh, ceasefire, uh, which is something that uh, the US, the UK, France, uh, and Japan have uh, rejected uh, at the UN Security Council, uh, and to ease the humanitarian situation by allowing humanitarian aid to flow uh, through uh, the Rafah crossing uh, and to bring pressure onto Israel to uh, allow food, fuel, water, electricity, the you know, basic necessities of life uh, to be restored to the Gaza Strip. There was a research piece recently saying, look, uh, Hamas has won effectively. They've found a way to radicalise more people. They've managed to cause instability in the region when there were peace conversations on the ticket. You know, how do we get back to a situation where there's de-escalation and it's even possible to talk about peace at this point? So Hamas has achieved a number of uh, strategic objectives. It has essentially broken Israel's invincibility narrative. It has demonstrated that uh, even the region's most effective military power can be hurt and uh, humiliated. Uh, it's probably succeeding and has already succeeded actually into provoking uh, an indiscriminate and uh, excessive uh, reaction by Israel, which not only allows Hamas to sustain uh, its recruitment and uh, its uh, social and political base, uh, but also erodes any international support for uh, Israel within within the West. Uh, the only path to a real de-escalation, uh, on the one hand, is a for a political desire on the part of Israel uh, to achieve that de-escalation uh, and to create a pathway for a serious peace process that works towards the end of uh, the Israel's illegal occupation of Palestinian territories and that gives Palestinians some hope that they can live their lives normally and attain their rights under international law. Because the worst thing you can do is push a people to the brink of utter and total desperation and give them nothing to lose. That is the worst uh, strategy ever. And of course, Israel's uh, Arab and Western partners have a role to play in uh, bringing pressure to bear on Israel to ease the humanitarian situation and work seriously towards uh, a peaceful uh, uh, outcome and a serious peace process that uh, allows Palestinians to live normal lives. Hassan, on that point about the role that the uh, Western allies of Israel can play here um, when it comes to trying to prevent a bigger humanitarian catastrophe, um, do you think that there is in fact more happening behind the scenes in private conversations whilst the U.S. very publicly stands with Israel um, at a headline level? Is that simply because they want to get in their ear in, uh, in a private way to try to get Israel to concede on the humanitarian level? One would hope so. And uh, we've already seen a slight change in tone on the part of the Biden administration where it has begun uh, to speak publicly about the need to uh, 
allow humanitarian aid to flow and to ease the humanitarian situation. But this is not the case with all of Israel's uh, allies in the West. So uh, the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's statement, uh, I think two days ago, uh, did not even mention the Palestinians or the need to protect civilians or the need to ease the humanitarian situation or even the word international law, not even once. Uh, and so there isn't a consistent position uh, among uh, Israel's Western allies, at least in private uh, or in public, pardon, about the need to um, ease the, the humanitarian situation in Gaza. Are they doing so in private? One can only hope. Hassan, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate your views. Hassan Al-Hassan, Research Fellow for Middle East Policy at IISS. For all the latest updates on the Israeli-Hamas war, head over to our website, cnbc.com. I think it's fair to say the market's closely watching the situation on the ground in the Middle East. However, we have got a bounce at this point on some of the major boards. 1.2% up on the Nasdaq, a fairly decent session playing out. And you can see across on the S&P, the Dow also managing to notch up fairly significant gains for the trading session. Our first positive day in three for the Nasdaq and for the S&P 500. The best trading day since about the 14th of September for the Dow. So it was a fairly decent performance. What we've got in the backdrop, again, more messages from Fed officials that, look, the central bank may be at the end when it comes to hiking rates. Of course, high for longer is still a story that we're talking about. But in terms of going much further north from here, there is a view that, look, we might be at peak levels already from the central bank. And that is, uh, again, being uh, communicated by some of those Fed officials. A quick look at what that's doing for Treasury markets as a result. Uh, you can see 4.74. We did inch up a little bit more on that yield again, but we're still well off the highs we've seen in recent weeks, that 4.88% percent level that we had. So so uh, the uh, rate here, you can see, just um, off that 5.1 on the short end, the two-year. Take a look at the dollar as a result. Uh, this is what we've got the morning session. Euro sterling on the back foot versus the greenback. You're seeing some gains for the U.S. currency, up about a tenth roughly versus the, those trades on sterling and euro and gaining versus the Japanese yen. 149.5 breach to this point. 150 still on watch for many traders for any sort of intervention level. Dollar yuan 7.31. To the Asian markets, a huge focus on the property market yet again today. This all hinges on a $15 million coupon payment from Country Garden. If this is not paid, there's been a 30-day grace period. It could be the trigger for a default on all offshore debt for the property developer. So it is a big one the market is watching very closely. That said, you can see the major boards picking up on the U.S. indices and the green that we saw on Wall Street. So up nine-tenths plus on Japanese stocks, 127 points or close to three-quarters, 1% on Hong Kong stocks. Shanghai eking out a slight gain, about a tenth, and Australia up about four-tenths of a percent. We're going to have something special tomorrow for our premium subscribers. Will Kaluris will be speaking to Nick Griffin, that is the Chief Investment Officer of Munro Partners, which has more than $4 billion Australian dollars in assets under management. They'll be discussing AI stocks, big tech, and the weight loss drug sector. You can catch that conversation tomorrow at the times on your screen, only on CNBC Pro. And later on this morning, this is a big one too. Uh, don't forget this is the man who forecast that we would have a higher for longer scenario as we began this year. And many market participants not necessarily on that page. Bank of America reading to report its third quarter results. Our US colleagues will be speaking to the CEO, Brian Moynihan. Don't miss that interview at 1600 CET, first on CNBC. Juliana. And coming up on this show, default looms for Country Garden as the embattled Chinese developer faces a key debt deadline. We'll bring you the details. Plus, a wild session for Bitcoin as rumors swirl about ETF applications. We'll look at what could be next for the sector. 
and Ericsson posting a 10% slide in organic sales amid weak network demand. We'll be joined by CEO Borja Ekholm later this hour. Don't miss that first on CNBC interview at 7.45 CET. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Russian President Vladimir Putin has arrived in Beijing to meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping in only his second trip abroad since the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for him. Putin is among leaders attending the Belt and Road Forum in Beijing and is expected to speak tomorrow before his bilateral meeting with Xi. Speaking ahead of the trip, Putin said he welcomes China's proposals on the war in Ukraine. We know the proposals of our Chinese friends. We highly value those proposals. I think they are absolutely realistic and could lay the foundation for peace arrangements. But unfortunately, the opposing side does not want to enter into any negotiations. Our colleague Sam Vadas joins us now with more uh, ahead of this summit. Sam, um, talk to us a little bit more about what we can expect uh, from this meeting between Xi and Putin. Very good morning to you, Juliana. Nice to see you there. Well, I mean, many things to watch in this meeting in terms of any signs of direct support from China in terms of Moscow. That is something that, of course, Beijing has been warned against on multiple occasions. No doubt China, of course, off the back of that, will be trying to manage the optics here, not to mention the fact that the EU trade chief was recently in China where they were saying that China's position around the war in Ukraine was damaging its image in terms of European businesses. Uh, but we will certainly be watching out for any commitments in terms of oil, gas, energy deals, the Power of Siberia 2 pipeline. That is something that is being very closely watched by the markets, given that there was a lot of suggestion that uh, Putin had sort of seemed to see this as a done deal earlier this year when President Xi Jinping was over in Russia. But there does seem to be still some uh, details to be ironed out. There has also been some question as to how much uh, gas that China actually needs from this pipeline once it's actually up and running. Uh, but also when it comes to areas like defense, of course, given some of the uh, focus and the attention that's been on the Chinese military lately with, of course, the defense minister not uh, making a public appearance now for quite a number of weeks. Um, definitely the whole event of the Belt and Road Forum happening this week does raise the question about China's convening power at a time when, of course, there is this renewed geopolitical risk playing out in the Middle East. Um, I put that to a few analysts today. They believe that the countries that are signed up to this, we have seen representatives from more than 130 nations heading over the, to, their, to Beijing for this event, 
seem to be sort of separating the politics from the economics when it comes to this uh, initiative. Um, certainly, this does seem to be a project that has drawn a lot of scepticism, uh, certainly around the deliverables in terms of some of the projects having hit snag. Uh, over the last 10 years, of course, we're entering a very new decade for uh, President Xi Jinping and what is really considered his baby. And as a result of some of the criticisms around the debt trap diplomacy and some of the doubts which have been fueled by his leadership and more recently COVID and the US relationship and of course what's also happening with Taiwan, um, that this is a much sort of leaner, greener initiative now. It is very much focused on higher quality uh, over quantity. That is certainly something that we're seeing in terms of the China growth trajectory as well. And uh, there has been some suggestion that this is going to be focusing more on, as I said, more sort of high tech, smaller uh, projects. There's also been a lot of questions about some of the countries that have signed up to this because in the past there's been criticism about China saddling these poorer nations with basically debt that they cannot afford. And so there's some question about the future of the BRI as we knew it for the last 10 years, given that perhaps there are some countries that are signed up to this, like Sri Lanka, for instance, that probably can't afford to do some of these uh, de these uh, developments and these projects. So there's going to be not sort of many high expectations in terms of deliverables, but I think definitely the Xi-Putin meeting will be one to watch, particularly given some of the criticisms uh, around China's response to not just of course, the war in Ukraine, uh, but also what we're seeing playing out in the Middle East as well, ladies. Sam, before we let you go, let me ask you about Country Garden. We were just saying the many people in the market are watching this very closely. The offshore debt uh, could now be in default if the property giant misses a deadline to pay that $15 million coupon, which is due today. We know there's been a 30-day grace period. Just walk us through this because the company narrowly avoided default last month, but still warning is about its ability to meet that uh, offshore bond repayment. So those fears continue now for the sector. Yeah, I was, I was speaking to a guest about in the previous hour, Karen. We're probably not likely to see any sort of major headlines from this today, even though that deadline is looming, because as you say, we are now getting to the end of that 30-day grace period. And if there is a non-payment, then that will mean that this could be the latest sort of more high-profile Chinese property developer to actually default. And no doubt that will have huge ramifications, ripple effects throughout the property sector, which is already very much on edge given some of the previous high profile defaults. You've got to understand, I suppose, the scope of this company in terms of its exposure to the more sort of lower tier cities across China. Um, it has managed to get through the last couple of difficult years uh, relatively unscathed. So uh, it was quite a surprise when things started to, I suppose, come to light about this company and the pressures that it was uh, also facing. Uh, just a few months ago, it certainly had come out reassuring that its debt obligations were going to be key here, and particularly to try to uh, meet 
and address some of those issues around getting those unfinished projects done because this has been something that has very much impacted the property market over in China. Of course, we saw those mortgage repayment boycotts last year, which very much dented buyer sentiment. Um, and so it's very important to understand just, uh, I suppose, the scale of the impact that this company could have, given that it is one of the biggest property developers, but it is the biggest private developer over in China. Uh, and just to give you a sense, uh, you've got Nomura, for instance, which is very much highlighted that lower tier cities make up for around 70% of new home sales volume over in China. And so they are a very big driver of commodity demand and construction activity at a time when, of course, the Chinese government is very much trying to spur some of that to, to help the growth trajectory. So that is something we are watching very closely in the markets. And while we're not seeing too much of an impact in Hong Kong today, this has had a spillover effect, certainly in terms of some of those A shares today, the real estate index, the biggest underperformer on the mainland markets this morning. Sam, Back to you. Thank you very much for that, Sam. Much appreciated. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.